Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, I welcomed Farah Storr, former editor-in-chief of LUK and now at Substack. Plus, Singapore title Meantime, this time revealing the sins of the country. And dreamy title Mirage. Enjoy the show. From Midori Housing, London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking to Farah Storr, former editor-in-chief of LUK and Cosmopolitan, and now head of Writer Partnerships UK for Substack, the rising platform for independent writers and creators. Described as a subscription network where readers pay writers directly, today's Substack encompasses more than 35 million active subscriptions. Farah dropped by the Midori House to tell us more about Substack and how revolutionary it can be. By and large, you know, my 20, I think, God, 22-year career in magazines was literally in magazines, so paper, printed paper. And even though I worked on the websites, you know, we were in the business of selling magazines, which came out once a month. We had writers who were well-known. And now, of course, Substack is similar in many regards, but, you know, it's a platform where there are thousands of writers, many of them new voices, and In traditional media, most of our money, certainly on glossy magazines, which which I edited, most of our money was made from advertising. The difference with Substack is the money comes from the consumer, so you are paid directly by the readers who read your content. That's a real game-changer, I think, and and, and in some ways, I wish we'd have done more in that in, in traditional media, actually. That's amazing. And can you please describe, actually, your current job at Substack? What do you do? I know, do you support kind of new writers? I'm very curious about that. Yes. Yeah, so my job is I'm head of writer partnerships for the UK, but essentially I help run the UK and open up the UK market because when I joined Substack, which was about 18 months ago now, I think, we had some names that you would recognize on there. Dominic Cummings was probably the most famous name who was on Substack at that point. Suzanne Moore was another person, very well-known journalist. But really, I remember when I, when I was moving over to Substack and everybody was going, is it Snapchat you're going to? And I was like, no, it's Substack. <laughs> and so my, my remit really, it changes every day. The majority of my time day to day is spent working with writers, encouraging writers, helping writers get the best out of the platform, strategizing what would make a really interesting substack. It's their business, of course, but I can help advise them. But then another part of my role is I do these huge masterclasses to um, I work with book publishers. I'm about to do one with The Guardian. I do masterclasses to anyone. I mean, if you're a writer, I'll do a huge masterclass and go come along, learn about substack. So it's very much a role which is writers first, but also just getting people familiar with what is Substack, how does it work? And also I think the idea, and I think this is important, the idea that a lot of people for a while thought Substack really was a platform just for writers. And even though I would say at its heart, because it started with writers, I would say Substack actually is a platform for anybody who, you know, is creative or has something to to say. So it's a very diverse job. It's exciting. 
Very exciting. And I'm very curious about the monetization of it as well, as you said, because I think for some people it can be a bit daunting, like how much should I charge? How how does it work? But I think at Substack itself, there are a lot of explanations, a lot of masterclasses about it, right? Because it can be hard as well for perhaps a writer that is not very well known to start charging straight away, right? Yeah. I, and I think also, and I was saying to someone the other day, I don't know if this is a particularly British thing as well, um, I think it's a British thing and it's a writer thing. Writers feel uncomfortable asking for money. Mm. You know, that, that that has always been the way of the artist. They feel uncomfortable around money. And I feel like Brits are even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult for people to suddenly go, OK, now I'm going to ask my readers for money. When, by the way, most digital content is free. So that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's changing, by the way. I think a lot, lot of media companies, they're realising that you can't really do that. That's it. It's crazy to keep yeah. on doing that because, yeah. of course, it makes a writer's work worthless, really. Mm. So if you have a, you know, a very small profile, I always say to writers, you don't need a huge amount of people in order to make a living from Substack, by the way, or certainly a side hustle. What you do need, I think is to figure out a story or a topic or a world or a viewpoint that probably isn't being offered anywhere else. So that's the one thing that I help writers with, identifying if the world's got, you know, so much of this, what's the thing that you are uniquely placed to write about or, or, you know, to do videos on or to do podcasts on? The second thing is you, of course, have to, you know, and this is the truth, there is an element of hustle you have to sort of get quite clever at marketing yourself there are a lot of writers who and and this is a very common scenario who go well you know I didn't get on board with Twitter I didn't get on board with Instagram I don't have a huge social following by the way that's a lot of writers they don't have hundreds Mm. of thousands of followers and so their worry is that they're not going to be able to make money but actually, there are lots of writers on Substack who did not come with these huge ready-made audiences. A really good example is there's a lady, she was a pastry chef, actually. She's still a pastry chef. She's called Nicola Lamb. And in lockdown, she started a Substack about the process of making cakes and bread and whatnot. I think she had on, on Instagram maybe about 4,000 followers, so not huge. And she started it as a hobby. Her Substack has grown now to such a degree that it's now her full-time job. It's where most of her income comes from. And off the back of her Substack, she's now got a book deal. And I asked her recently, I said, well, how did you do it? Because actually, your Instagram, it wasn't huge numbers and it wasn't that active. And I think what it comes down to is she was doing something so different that word of mouth spread. And that's what happens with Substack. If your content is great and... If you engage with the community, because there is a big community side, and, and, and Nicola Lamb does that incredibly well, you know, she'll ask her community, have you got a recipe you want to share? I'll put it on my Substack. So the community gather around her, and then the community helps spread the word. And so she has now grown to such a degree, as I said, it's, it's now her full-time job. So it is doable, and she's just one example of many um, but yeah, you, you, you just have to sort of figure out who are your people. You can't go after the world, find your people, think about the content they want and create that world and magic for them. And do you feel, I mean, of course, we're talking about the new writers and up and coming, but the more established writers that perhaps are already quite famous. And do you think they choose Substack as well, perhaps for a little bit of freedom? Perhaps they're a bit constricted what they can write for the traditional publication. Do you, do you see that a little bit of that as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, all the time. Because you have to remember, 
and of course I was guilty of this, I mean, I was part of the machine, but mm. if you are an editor and you are commissioning a writer, there's only so many slots, there's only so many words, so you're writing to a word count, mm-hmm. you're generally having to fill a particular slot, and most writers have all these ideas, and, and some of the ideas are just a tiny seed of an idea, but they'll pitch it to the editor and the editor will go, oh, we've got somebody writing about spas, so you can't write about spas, even if that writer has a completely different take David Aronovich is a very famous example. He was at the Times for many years, mm. 18 years, I think. He joined Substack maybe last month, been hugely successful straight out the gates. But the most wonderful thing that he said is the absolute freedom of that he can challenge people that perhaps he couldn't challenge before. And he can wake up in the morning and come up with an idea and he can just run with it. And uh, Farah, I know you're in, kind of in charge of Substack more here in the United Kingdom, but where is actually the company from and is it kind of present worldwide? So it's an American company, so it started five years ago. Um, main office is in San Francisco, have another office in New York. The audience primarily, of course, is American, but we have, there are people globally, I mean, everywhere from sort of India to Sydney you know, to the outer reaches of Scotland. So so the writers or people on Substack are global. But in terms of if you're looking at the biggest markets, of course, America, where it's pretty established now, you know, Substack, pretty much everybody knows what Substack is. The UK is growing very, very quickly. And Europe now we're starting to see is really starting to grow. So yes, it exists globally. But I think, you, you know, if you were to ask somebody in the street in Paris and say, do you know what Substack is? Or you ask somebody in the street in New York, you're going to get a very different answer. But I see that changing very quickly. I mean, you know, every day now I look at someone's Twitter biog and a little Substack link gets put in there. Well, I saw that here. I ask a few of my colleagues as well, and lots of them, they follow a certain number of, of Substacks. You have your own, right? Yes, I've got my... I mean, when I started at Substack, I, I was like, well, I, I need to really figure out exactly how it works and you know, what the difficulties writers might face. So I started my own. I did it once a week because that's the only amount of time I could give it. I write it on a Saturday. And without being too vulgar, I make $70,000. That's more money than I make or made when I was offered my very first editorship. And that's by doing one thing a week. And when I tell people, they're absolutely gobsmacked. I mean, they cannot believe it. And I suppose it's not a way to boast, but the reason I tell writers is, it's that look, what you can create. And that's just my side hustle. That's what I do at the weekend. People will pay for your work if they love what you do and they find that it enhances their life. So I have to say, I've almost been like my own experiment to see just how incredible this thing can be. That's amazing. That's amazing. And it's good to know sometimes the numbers because people... People have no idea sometimes. You know, it's good to be clear, I think, especially in journalism, where things are a bit hush-hush at times. I think that's right, because yeah. you can say to people, you'll make money from this thing, and then yeah, they yeah. go, yeah, but can you tell us numbers? And, of course, you know, I can't tell the numbers it's not my, my place to. Mm. But there's something wonderful about going, look, I started this a year ago. Look at the graph. Look, look at the sort of acceleration of mine. Mm. I do it once a week. You can do it too. So, yeah, I, I think... You know, I'm always up for talking about numbers. It's important. And finally, Farah, I mean, as you've been mentioning, Substack's growing. What do you feel for 2023? I mean, are you feeling optimistic that Substack, especially here in the UK, is getting more popular? I mean, you mentioned David Aronovich, right? I mean, that was quite a big get as well. Yeah, I mean, there are, I can't tell their names, but there's there's a couple of other big names in, in mm. the pipeline who are coming through. I mean, every day now, you know, Substack, when I first joined, 
journalists knew what Substack was. But but when, you know, when I talked to those people who were sort of, you know, influencers or people who were chefs, there wasn't as much of an awareness. It's sort of going crazy right now. I mean, there is so much energy around this thing. So 2023... I don't think it's a challenge to traditional media and I don't think that's the place of Substack and it never was. But I definitely think it's going to occupy a really interesting, really fruitful place alongside traditional media for writers and creators. Thank you very much, Farah. Pleasure talking to you. And for more information, go to substack.com. And now, as summer is approaching the Northern Hemisphere, no better magazine to read than Mirage, a delightful independent title found in 2009 by Henrique Purien and Frank Rochol. The fashion and culture title is inspired by the hedonistic culture of the 60s and 70s. The latest issue is titled Universe Parallel. Frank tells me more about Mirage and the latest issue, revolving around an utopian dream. What is Mirage? I think on the first level, it's a retro-inspired annual book object full of dream cars, dream girls, and interesting architecture and interiors or objects. And then on the second level, it's a kind of artistic statement by um, Henrik Purien and myself, basically like a band. So coming out with a new album when it's time. And then on the third level is this kind of parallel universe for people who are looking for a dreamy, endless summary utopian kind of world, like the hedonistic side of things. Therefore, it's a bit ideological and educational at the same time. That's the charm of it, and that gives it a niche of its own. And I think that's why people started to collect these books and well, these days they sell for 450 euros on eBay. That's super surprising to us. I think it's a great description. And of course, the most important thing is, is the book, is the beautiful physical object I have in front of me. So is it an annual kind of publication, right? Yeah, it depends. Sometimes it takes us two years because this hasn't been our core business. So Hendrik is an international photographer and I'm working like an international creative director. And that was always like our baby, our side project. We just brought it out or we couldn't do it better. So we, we, we just invested the time until we thought, well, that's it now. Because me personally, I always hated buying magazines and there were just two or three interesting stories in it and the rest was oh, felt like fillers. So we thought hmm, it's maybe better to have a very rich content full of surprising stuff. And so, yeah, and that's when we come out. And, and sometimes it takes a year. Sometimes it takes two years, but I think we're back to the annual. We were speeding up a bit. Wow, that's good. And I like what you said about the magazine. There's this idealistic summer spirit vibe, because I think I feel personally I, I need that in my life. I think it's, it, it's kind of almost chasing beauty, if you know what I mean. I think you would know very well what I mean, uh, having yeah. a look at Mirage. <laughs> yeah, of course. And uh, tell us, how, how did yeah. you meet Enrique as well? I would, I would like to know Enrique Pirien. What's the relationship between both of you? Yeah, the beginning. I mean, I met Hendrik in Cape Town and I was already an established creative. I worked for big brands like Lufthansa and Audi, won some awards and essays. And that was all leading to become a design professor. But I was a bit disillusioned because I had realized I was part of a service business, like a facilitator kind of. So at that point, I entered Hendrik Prien's Cape Town world. He comes from Cape Town originally. So I was just there on holidays and had seen some of his work and was just curious. 
And then he showed up on a vintage Lambretta, wearing like a Pierre Cardin shirt. And he was with his very beautiful girlfriend at the time, all in vintage Chloe with a little Eiffel Tower badge on the dress. And they were smoking these slim YSL cigarettes. And they felt completely very friendly and unstressed, creatives. They were living in this little affordable apartment surrounded by friends. Nearly every evening there was a spontaneous party at somebody's place. And this was, to me, the opposite creative community to the one in Germany, where everything was very competitive. And then I found out the focus there was just on the creativity and not on the commerce. So equipment was shared if needed, and everybody was aware of what was going on in town. And in that climate, over a coffee, we decided to start this magazine. And Henrik wanted to do it digital, and I knew how to do it in print, and I knew how to organize the money for it, which let it happen at the end. So. We just started with a little PDF describing the idea to potential uh, contributors. And then, uh, super surprising to us, lots of people, uh, like our heroes back in the days, reacted and then sent us material. And then we got in touch with the distribution side of Conde Nast in London. And they had these two good things for us. They had a database where thick magazines are sold and they had the overseas containers where they transport the Vogue's. So, they just put us on top of these containers and then Mirage number one came out. And boom, we just instantly sold like 55% of the circulation, which is massive. That's how it all started. And where do you sell the magazine? Of course, you can buy it from your website, but do you have specific places around the world to sell this magazine? Because as you mentioned, some of the previous editions, they are on eBay for you know, a very high price. Yeah, we, we sell the magazine over lots of international bookstores. We collaborate with Saint Laurent and they sell stuff over the flagship stores in Paris and Los Angeles. And these days it's 50-50%. So 50% direct online sales and 50% over bookshops and boutiques. And I mean, the main market for this is America or Australia or Japan. Japan and Asia is getting big. So these days it's really like a global operation. It's a good fit with Saint Laurent because, you know, even looking at their advertising, because th there is yeah. that sense as well of sexy, some kind of quite chic as well, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, the problem with Mirage was that nudity is involved. Normally, magazines are financed over ads, of course. So an integration of the brands into the magazine. And then that ends up that you need to have red carpet pictures in the magazine or product special pages or you need a Hollywood star on the cover. And that was all impossible for us to handle as a small operation. So we skipped all that nonsense for us and turned the whole thing around. So we skipped the long rule book listing and decided on, okay, we are not able to, oh, to, to organize a bikini from Gucci. And then they just give us this bikini for one day. And the next day it has to be on the other side of the world. And if we, if we are not able to organize all this, we end up on a blacklist. So, which happened to us. So this whole concept of magazine wasn't working for us. So we, we just focused on the stuff we were able to organize. So just do it yourself. Just do the best out of the stuff that you have. And then we switched the whole concept to photographer and muse, photographer and friends, and skipped all these complete retouched look. So it's all very authentic and real. And, and that all became the formula for it. There was a complete weird formula for a magazine when we started it in 2008. I mean, these days it's copy to death. But back in the days, that was the formula that really worked. 
I love you mention as well the, the fact that there is nudity as well, because there's no problem in being sexy. And I think things change in magazines. But I love that about Mihaj as well, that, you know, you can have a very beautiful, sexy, summery, hedonistic picture and also incredible design. I even have a note here, page 46, Bruce Goff, that living room, Joe Price house. I mean, I want that I living that's room. That's from the 50s. Yeah, yeah, from the 50s. Can you imagine oh, somebody God. in the 50s? It looks like a pyramid. It's so weird. And, and I mean, that's exactly what we're looking for, like these kinds of discoveries. But I mean, doing this, you compete to Instagram and all these oh, inspirational pages. So many people collect this kind of imagery. But to combine it in a Mirage way, it's a different challenge. Thank you very much, Frank. And Mirage issue six is out now. You can buy a copy at miragemag.com. And finally, we head to Singapore to speak with Pang She Chang, editor of Meantime, the incredibly creative title that documents Singapore stories lost time. The latest issue is centered on sin. To explain the concept and also the latest issue unusual format, here is Pang with more. So Meantime is an independent magazine that we explore the history of Singapore, but through personal stories. So the theme for our fourth issue is on bad stories. And we sort of redefine what it means to be bad. We are looking at Singapore through sins, misbehaviors, vices. When you read the issue, you would actually look at Singapore through sort of this lens where we're not as straight, we're not as strict. We are looking at a country through this lens of bad behaviors. And it's quite interesting because Singapore doesn't sell itself as a place for sins, you know. But, but of course, reading all the stories, I love that you do this in such a natural way, completely non-judgmental. I mean, we go through all the deadly things from, from gluttony, which is quite interesting. The story about tiger beer, right? Which is it's quite famous, I would say, worldwide. It's quite a symbol of Singapore in many ways. We think that tiger beer is one of the greatest exports in our country, which is kind of ironic because it's a beer. We associate it with excess, drinking, getting drunk, gluttony, as you said. So yeah, uh, we thought that if we could capture the attention, uh, look at Singapore through Tiger Beer, it's just not just a beverage, but also because it's been around for a long time. Um, how can we look at Singapore through this object, through Tiger Beer? And so, yeah, we opened the entire magazine with that. And I think Tiger Beer, as you said, it resonates with, I think, an, sort of an international audience where people might know about Tiger Beer, but some of you may not know that it actually originates and it's from Singapore. And again, let's go back to this wonderful kind of the format of this new issue, which you have to describe. And I have a feeling you've done that to be a little bit naughty in a way, because it's unconventional. It is a little bit of a, of a, of a sin in many ways. Can you describe it, what I have here in my hands? It's, it's a magazine, but in a completely new shape. Yes, that's right. So yeah, in each issue of Meantime, we try to play with the form of the publication. So for our third issue, we had a bite mark. So you might have seen that around on our social media. But anyway, so the, our latest issue, we sliced it from the bottom angle. And the reason why we do that is that when you put it upright on a shelf, it looks like it's sinking into the ground. And yeah, like it's melting. <laughs> like it's melting. It's a little bit naughty because we have our readers telling us that it's impossible for them to shelve it properly on their bookshelf. It would stick out. It's impossible to shelve it in the right way. It would jut out from the rest of the books. 
apart from us really enjoying playing with it, uh, I think this idea that you're unable to fit it in into a typical bookshelf and that it just stands out shows this little bit of sin in design, but also sin in terms of like, we refuse to conform. Absolutely, absolutely. But I have a feeling that the readers of Meantime, they, they will adapt somehow in their in their bookshelf in a way. And and what about the desirability of, of the magazine? Because here, issue four, it says here that 800 copies have been printed. How do you feel about that? Do you like the fact that it's, you know, it's quite a controlled number? Tell us a bit more about this collectability of Meantime. We have found that 800 is a sweet spot for us. We publish it once a year. And we're able to sell about 750, close to 800 in one year, in a cycle of one year. And I think the limited, I think there are two reasons why we keep it limited. Number one is that there's always a handmade element to meantime, such as like playing with the form, slicing it, putting in things uh, by hand. So if our print run is more than 800, that would be too much for us. So 800 limits us so that it's manageable for us when we have any handmade elements. And number two, as you mentioned about the collectability of it, I think right now when people buy something in print, we sort of want to give them a reason for them to buy in print. So the limited collectability or the limited number just sort of gives this exclusivity to it that you know that there's just 800 copies and that you are one of 800 that owns it. I have a question because, of course, the theme of this issue is sins, but of course, things that perhaps people don't want to talk about it, they hide underneath, perhaps, you know, especially in Singapore. How how difficult it is, or or maybe it's not difficult, for a publisher and journalist in Singapore, are there things that you really actually can't talk about? Yeah, so in our mainstream media, we are known to uh, be tightly controlled by the government. A lot of journalists work with the limitation that the newspapers have to be screened or are being closely watched by the authorities. So there are certain bound, we call them OB markers, out of bound markers that they cannot really talk or discuss freely about, especially in areas where it matters like religion, race, or even politics. There's a lot of censorship that goes on in Singapore. And that is in the mainstream media. The blessing for us is that for independent publishing, self-publishing, we sort of fly under the radar. We're able to sort of discuss a little bit, um, slightly push the boundaries, I guess. But of course, that also means that we have a responsibility to make sure that when we talk about these issues, that it has to be factual, it has to be objective as well. It's not totally free reign or free speech. We've got to make sure that we have a responsibility to make sure that our reporting or our stories are still accurate. And because I'm, I'm looking here that, you know, the magazine has been supported by the National Heritage Board, is that some sort of governmental board or, or not really? So the National Heritage Board is actually a statutory board that supports ground-up community efforts. So for us, what they do for Meantime is actually that they give us a little bit of support, but they do not interfere or meddle with the content at all. So the content that we do, the stories that we do, um, we still have 100% as the editorial team, we still have 100% ownership and their ownership of the direction and what stories that we want to tell. The reason that they are supporting is that they find that what we do, they love 
that we are doing archival work that because for meantime, what we do is that we interview a lot of families, a lot of personal stories, and these stories are not usually captured in other areas. So that sort of resonates with the National Heritage Board here in Singapore, where they feel that our work, even though some of them might talk about, may push some of the boundaries, uh, or we talk about some like sins or um, vices, misbehaviors, or looking at Singapore through a different unusual side, but they value our work because of the fact that we do this archival thing, like we are doing this archival work, I guess. Which is very true. It feels to me also a little bit of an archive of, of, of Singaporean society and history, not just issue four, but all the previous ones as well. Yes, we are thankful that we enjoy doing this work as well and that we are sort of capturing all these little stories that really would be lost in time if nobody documents it. So we do see it as sort of our mission as well, that we want to capture all these little stories, family stories, personal history, and hopefully 100 years, 50 years down the road, someone would pick up in time and realize that, hey, this is what Singapore is like. Thank you very much, Pang. And for more information, go to meantime.sg. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. And meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com and subscribe to The Stack on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Montmartre and Serge Gainsbourg with C, Sax and Sun. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. <laughs>